The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cars to the cart, yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men in Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, 
the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Thanks, Jenna. Lord, we thank you for the privilege, Lord, of having your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who um, has chosen to reveal yourself to us. You've given us your word so that we can understand you, your character. We can understand how you want us to relate to you. And Lord, sometimes we come to a passage like this that uh, we may be confused. It may be difficult. We may not be sure exactly what is going on. Lord, I ask that you would help us today by your Holy Spirit to, to guide us in your truth in such a way that we will grasp, Lord, the, the, the principles that you were desiring, Lord, initially as the author wrote this for his audience, that we would grasp the, and connect the dots for our own lives so that we can live our lives in a way that would honor you and that we would see you for who you really are. Allow me, Lord, today to be your messenger, to be faithful, Lord, to proclaim your truth. Lord, we ask for strength now and wisdom in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The holiness and the resulting wrath of God are topics that our contemporary culture struggles to understand. How can a God allow so much suffering to take place in the world? How can God condemn people to an eternity of suffering in hell? How is it that God of the Old Testament can be so bloody? Why so many people have to die because of sin? Where's the love in all of that? It just doesn't seem right that the God of the Old Testament could be so emotional. We read things like the anger of the Lord was kindled or the, the wrath of God poured out, or God poured out on, on such and such people. And friends, this is a contemporary issue, but this has been a lasting issue through the church, through the years. People do not like to hear about the holiness of God in a way that reveals that God, who has been scorned, exercises his holy wrath. That is an offense to people. Rabbi Harold Kushner, in his book, how good do we have to be, tells of ministering in the synagogue on Yom Kippur, which is the Jewish Day of Atonement, and feeling distressed by the guilt that his people felt. And so to address those guilt feelings, Kushner wrote this book, revising the Bible's story of Adam and Eve and their fall into sin, ultimately by eating from the, the tree that forbidden tree, and this is what he says. A God who punishes people so severely for breaking one arbitrary rule was not a God I wanted to believe in. So in his retelling of the story, he says this, the story of the Garden of Eden is not an account of people being punished for having made one mistake, losing paradise because they were not perfect, the story of the Garden of Eden is not a story of the fall of man, 
but of the emergence of humankind. So rather than take God at his word and help mankind see the sinfulness of their own sin and that it produces guilt because they are sinful and ultimately that this fall of man demands a sacrifice and there is a sacrifice that can remove the guilt that is on man, he chooses to retell the story. So rather than actually proclaim the gospel, rather than actually take, in that context, Jews to the atonement for what it is, we're just going to retell the story. But the same happens in the church. We find those similar things taking place in the greater body of Christ. Listen to Joel Green and Mark Baker as they write in their book called Recovering the Scandal of the Cross. The scandal of the cross, by the way, is that Jesus Christ has atoned for our sins. That's what they're saying. The scriptures as a whole provide no ground for a portrait of an angry God needing to be appeased in an atoning sacrifice. And all of us here are saying, what Bible are you reading? But friends, this is, this is what's going on in the church. This is what's gone on throughout church history. People do not like the idea of a holy God who exercises his wrath. Now, I would like to apply those truths that have been said to the cities of Philistines. Do you think Ashdod recognized the wrath of God on them? Chapter 5, absolutely. Get rid of the ark, remember that? And they send it off. Where did they send it to? They send it to Gath, and Gath was experiencing the wrath of God. Oh no, God's not a God of wrath. He doesn't do that kind of stuff. He wouldn't dare do that. He's a kind God. He's a loving God. And ultimately, the ark ends up in Ekron, and they're doing the same thing, complaining, understandably, because of all the suffering they're going through. But in our passage, in chapter one, or sorry, chapter six and verse one, notice what we have recorded here. This is the ongoing saga of the ark of God in particular, after it's been taken captive by the Philistines, chapter 5 just tells the story of how the ark in their presence just caused havoc for their God, Dagon, and in their cities. Verse 1, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. I mean, what a seven months that would have been. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? They recognized that it was the ark, or, or the God of Israel that was represented by the ark that was the source of their suffering. Well, what should we do? How can we get out from under the hand of the wrath of God? How can we get out from under the holiness of God? Why do they want to send it away? Because as I mentioned, they understood that the hand of God was on them, on their God, Dagon. Remember, he fell down twice. The second time, his health fell off. His hands fell off. The people in the cities broke out in tumors. And the land in particular was also experiencing the hand of God. That's what the text tells us. So this morning, the text of Scripture is shouting out a question for us all to consider. 
I can say it a couple of ways. Here's the first way. How do we respond to and respect the holiness of God? Or, put it this way, the God of Israel is holy and demands our respect. It's not a question, it's a statement. The question is, how do we respond to and respect the holiness of God? Is God holy? Then how do we approach this holy God? How do we interact with this holy God? And the chapter of 1 Samuel 6 and a little bit in verse 7, or chapter 7, is going to tell us how people did respond to the holiness of God in their particular context. So we're going to start here by looking at the Philistines. And I'm saying they were learning respect the hard way. They were learning respect the hard way. Let's begin at verse 3. They said... If you send away the ark of God to Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. And I'm going to walk us through now just the thinking and the, the things that they did. And after we've done some of that, then we're just going to kind of tease it out and think about the implication and the application for us. Now I want to begin by saying this. There's something in, in how the Philistines respond that is insightful, um, but there's also something in there that demonstrates their ignorance. So let's first of all look at what's insightful here. All right, their insight. As we look at the thinking and behavior of the Philistines, we can truly say that they came to some right conclusions about some things. First of all, they came to the right conclusion that they were guilty. That they were guilty. They understood that they were guilty before the God of Israel. Yes, they had defeated Israel, but they had not defeated the God of Israel. That was very plain. That was very apparent, right? They had returned victoriously with the Ark of the Covenant. They set it up in the Temple of Dagon, but they came in and saw that Dagon was bowing down to the Ark. They had seen and felt the wrath of God in their tumors and the heavy hand of God upon them. For seven months, these things were happening. That's a long period of time to suffer. Especially when you came back victorious. That's a long time. So they knew that they were guilty of offending the God of Israel and were desperate to get out from under his wrath. So that's why in verse 3 it says, they said, if you send away the ark of God, do not send it empty. By all means, return him a guilt offering. All right, you're guilty. We're guilty. We've got to give him back. We've got to do something here. And that leads to the next thing. There was certainly an understanding that there was a need for a sacrifice, some kind of sacrifice. So verse 3 again, it says, they said, if, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? Now, this is them interacting with the priests and the diviners. And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and your lords. So they recognized that they should not return the ark empty. In other words, just returning the ark to Israel was not sufficient. They recognized there's a need for a sacrifice that would acknowledge their guilt. And so they, they plan on giving God of Israel a guilt or reparation offering. And so they, they come up with this plan, this idea. The priests and diviners 
say, well, let's, let's have five golden tumors, each to represent one of the cities of Philistia. And then we have these golden mice. Apparently, um, the means by which the, these plagues were actually played out, I think that's how it fits into the context of what's going on here. But not only do they recognize their guilt and see the need for a sacrifice, but there's also a sense in which they recognize the sovereignty of God. And I want you just to continue reading here because um, they, 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 you know, they, they realize that they need to give him glory and they realize that he is the one that has to remove his wrath from them. So verse five, so you must make images of your tumors and, and, and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. And, and here's really kind of the point. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. In other words, it's up to him. We can, do, we can do what we want here, but he's the one that ultimately decides. He is sovereign to come to those conclusions. Now, there's a fourth thing I see here also that's worthy of mention here that it's somewhat insightful. The revelation that they had received. They recognized that they had a window into God's ways. But what's interesting is you listen to the Philistines talk about the God of Israel. What do they know? It's almost like they, they constantly go back to the account of Israel, where? In Egypt. Isn't that interesting? They had a witness testimony of the power of God among the Israelites when they left Israel, or sorry, left Egypt, and went ultimately into the wilderness. So notice what it says here. Woe to us! This is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verses 8 and 9. This is the first time we see it. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Remember, Israel had been defeated, and they said, oh, let's go get the ark, and they put the ark down, and the whole camp is rejoicing, and the Philistines are like, how come they're rejoicing? What's up with that? And they find out, oh, it's the ark of God. So this is what they say. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So, I mean, they remember this account, but it continues on now in chapter 6 and in verse 6. As they're considering their options, as they're, they're, ref, they're reflecting here on what's going on. Verse 6, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and departed? Right? So God brought all these plagues. He brought this wrath. And what did Pharaoh say? Let's just let him go. Let him go. Let him go. Send him away. Send him away. But his was as a result of a hardened heart. He's saying, don't, don't harden your hearts. Just you know, do this because you know this is the right thing to do. You do this because we want to get rid of his, his wrath. Right? So there's, there's an echo now from this a little bit of revelation they have to understand that there is a God here that needs to be appeased. He needs a sacrifice. He needs to recognize our guilt. Right, so there's much to commend them for in their under-pressure desire to appease God. Their guilt, their, their, their seeing a need for a sacrifice, the fact that they recognize God as sovereign, and the fact that they came to a conclusion based on what little revelation they had uh, they had some insight, but friends, that insight was not sufficient because they were also very ignorant. Okay? Well, let's just think now about their, their ignorance. The first thing I want you to notice is this. Let's think about the guilt offering. 
although their eyes were open to the need for a guilt offering, when they asked the question, well, what do we need for a guilt offering? And they came up with this idea of, of these golden tumors and mice. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone was trying to appease me, bringing some golden tumors would not necessarily be a great thing, right? Here's a tumor for you. Thank you so much. So kind of you. All right? And especially to kind of have it gold so it would be something that, that was supposed to be looked at, right? So we, we, we kind of, we relate and we understand, hey, you know, they were trying their best in their own kind of pagan thinking to come up with a plan, but there were some very strict, specific um, guidelines for what a guilt offering looks like. You see, what they really needed was not somehow to come up with their own thinking and their own plan. What they really needed was to consult God by turning to an Israelite priest who could have told them what God requires in a guilt offering. Let's just think about this. Leviticus chapter five, verse 15. I'll just read it for you. If anyone combines a a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any one of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. In in coming to this priest, they would have understood that God requires a ram for the sacrifice, not golden tumors, and not mice. In fact, um, the priest would have understood that the, the Philistine offerings were not appropriate, nor were they sufficient to appease God. Later in the New Testament, though, we would find the Apostle Peter reminding us that forgiveness does not come from perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb without blemish or spot. The, the, the these images of the tumors and of the mice were, were considered to be unclean, could not be offered in, in, a, in a sacrifice to God in that way. They did not equal a guilt offering. It was an attempt, but it fell way short because God specifically lays out what a guilt, guilt offering looks like. So there's the guilt offering, that's one issue. Then there was a, they were ignorant of the ways of God. Now we'll just kind of play this out. They recognized the heavy hand of God as they reasoned what they were suffering or why they were suffering. Chapter five, verse seven says, on us and Dagon, our God. Now, um, there appears a desire to know for certain. They, they want to be sure that their understanding is correct. So they come up with a plan. And it's an extremely clever plan. Now, if you caught this as we read, let's just read it, and then we're going to get tease out what were some of the things that they were, they were thinking through. Verse 7, now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there have never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their, their calves home and away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put a box at its side and the figures of gold which are Uh, you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And watch, if it goes up on its way to the land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So they they were manipulating a sign of confirmation. 
That's what's going on here. But let's think through each, each of these little parts. The cart, actually, I think, was an aspect of respect. We're not going to touch this thing any more than we have to touch it. We're going to put it on a, on a cart. Not only is it going to be a thing that we can stand away from, but it's going to be something that can just go by itself where it needs to go. Right? So I think there was, there was an aspect of respect there. But then we come up with these milk cows. Just think about milk cows. What's the idea? That, that means that they have calves that they're nursing at that point in time. Right? A milk cow does not want to leave its calf. So you can think of their thinking, right? They said milk cows and do what with the calves? Take the cows away. And then these are cows that have never been yoked before. You know what it's like to be yoked for the first time, all right? It's like breaking in a horse, right? I mean, you gotta, you gotta get that animal under control. So that what they're doing here is they're setting things up for trouble. They're setting things up that would naturally go against the grain, so to speak. So if, if, if the God of Israel is actually saying what he's saying, then he has to break through some of these things, all right? And the last thing is, they're going to need to walk straight by themselves, straight and narrow down to the Israelite camp or the Israelite city there. So the men did so, it says in verse 10, and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went, they turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So guys, we're gonna start a new ministry, okay? Now, this is where we gotta be really, really careful, and this is where Old Testament narrative can sometimes be really confusing. What is going on here, and what is, what is the author showing us here that is helpful for us, All right? This, this, this attempt to appease God, this, this, this desire to, to, to somehow get rid of the ark and somehow by doing this um, break God's wrath um, is an attempt that is synergistic. Let me explain what I mean by that, okay? It's synergistic. It combines both pagan ideas as well as a little bit of biblical truth. Now, friends, you've got to think through this. They knew that they were worship- they knew that the God of Israel was the one that was exercising his wrath. How do we appease him? They said, we need a guilt offering. But what kind of offering was it? It wasn't a guilt offering that God had established and commanded. It was a guilt offering that they came to a conclusion themselves based on their own wisdom. So you have you have human thinking now saying, what can we do to appease God? We're gonna make some beautiful things. Costly things, they're expensive. And so synergism takes then this, this idea of pagan thinking with, might want to say, elements of biblical thinking and brings them together. Now let's just kind of tease this out a little bit. And let's look at some of the major religions of this world, and let's ask ourselves the question, is this what is going on? So we're just kind of, we're kind of playing around with this a little bit in our thinking to help us understand, does this kind of thinking take place, all right? So I have, what, four up there, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, and Hinduism. So let's just talk a little bit about these, all right? Islam, 
has a healthy respect for Jesus in their thinking as a prophet, but you cannot get to God unless you are faithful in keeping the five pillars. The teaching of Christ is appreciated, but eclipsed by the teaching found in the Quran. And man is left to work in some way on his own to appease God for his guilt. So there is the embrace of some things that relate to Christianity, about Christ, even the Old Testament, but it is synergized with the Quran, the teachings of Muhammad, and brought together, but man is still left not having been atoned for in their plan. There's no cross, there's no gospel, there's only you must work, you must work, you must work. It's a synergism. The next one, Mormonism, has again a healthy respect for Jesus in its system as one of many gods, but he is not the only God of Mormonism. Again, the teaching of Christ in the Bible is appreciated, but also eclipsed by the teaching of Joseph Smith found in the Book of Mormon. And once again, man's path to God is through his efforts at appeasing him by how he lives. So you have these two things brought together. So you talk to a Mormon, they say, well, we believe in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But they synergize it together with their other teachings. And so now man is left without an atonement. They're left to work to reach the next level, ultimately to be a God themselves in that context. Jehovah's Witnesses have, a, again, a healthy respect for Jesus, but not as God. Only as a superior angel whom Jehovah used to show many the way. Again, the teachings of Jesus are appreciated, but are relegated, and man is left to pursue appeasing God through his own effort. You see the pattern here? Major religions don't necessarily reject what Jesus says, or Jesus as a person, but they synergize them into their system. And this is also very true in Hinduism. It's a polytheistic religion, which means they believe in many gods. Also has a healthy respect for Jesus as one of many gods, but as in other religions of the world, his voice is drowned out and distorted by all the other teaching, and man is left to, to release himself from bondage or the caste system by virtue of his karma. And that's kind of like, you know, you have good karma, you have bad karma, and the more good karma you have moves you ahead. Okay? So, so man is left to himself to perform and somehow reach the necessary mark for his salvation. Friends, this is, this is synergism. This is how the religions of the world work. There is no atonement for sin. You're left to work on your own, on your own to somehow appease God. And friends, when that's true, we're stuck. We're in bondage. We're without hope. Now friends, these realities can also be present in the church, especially when we take biblical concepts and infuse them with pagan religious ideas. For example, if you're saying, I want to seek the voice of God, I want to hear him speak, 
And so you say, you know, I'm going to go for a weekend, and I'm going to go up to Yosemite, and I'm going to find myself a rock that I'm going to sit on. I'm going to open my Bible. I'm going to take my guitar. I'm going to sing some songs, and I'm just going to praise God, and I'm going to wait for that Holy Spirit experience. You may have just drifted off into synergism. You have your Bible, but what you're looking for is a mystical experience rather than God revealing himself from his word and through his word. But see, in many contexts, that's acceptable. Oh, it's great, man. I went up there, and we had such a great experience. The experience, if it's an experience that's flown out or sourced from the word of God, may be right, but many people are looking for experiences that bypass their time in the word. I want to hear from God. I was sitting up there, and, and you know, he just he spoke to me. What do you mean by that? That's going off and now to paganism again. So we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful about how, how we allow our thinking to be fashioned and shaped by the, the things that are outside the context of biblical Christianity. But it's so easy for them to get there. How about the idea of good deeds? If you think somehow doing more good deeds to those around you is going to result in the door to heaven opening up for you, you've just drifted off into the pagan land and will be greatly disappointed. You will not somehow get into heaven faster. You will not somehow get ahead in the queue, so to speak, because you're doing good deeds. What we find, as it relates to good deeds, is that those good deeds are the result of your union with Christ. They're not the means by which you get to Christ. Then there's legalism. Broad category, often misunderstood. But seeking to keep the highest standards of holiness and behavior, restricting the wearing of of only certain kinds of clothing or having guidelines on how you wear or cut your hair or limiting places where you and others should go or faithfully carrying a certain translation of the Bible and so many more self-imposed rules and regulations. These can, can all be a means by which we're actually taking pagan thinking of restriction that is a means of saying to God, look at me, I am worthy when that's not how we come to Christ. See, it's so easy to, to drift into this kind of pagan thinking and allow it to come into the context of our walk with God. And we live in, we live in a world where, friends, this is, this is peppering us at all, at all angles. You turn Christian radio on, you may have one show that's really good, and the next one it's like, woohoo, look out. But remember what Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? So we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. But continue reading. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the good works that Paul has in mind in Ephesians 2, 10 are not just what we might think about, you know, going into a soup kitchen or something like that. The good works that he has in mind begin in chapter four, verse one. 
having to do with your attitudes that flow out of your union with Christ, having to do with your, your choices of getting angry or not getting angry or stealing or not stealing, as he flushes out some examples there, about how you relate in your marriage and how you relate with other people. Those are all good works. Your discipleship is a, a whole life of God's good works at work in you. And certainly the result of that is going to be, all right, you might end up at a soup kitchen. But see, we replace the good works with, might want to say, mercy ministry when the good works that Paul's talking about is the good work that's taking place in your heart. It also includes those other things. And I'll continue on here, Philippians 1.6. Paul says this to the Philippian church, I am sure of this, that he who began a, what? A good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So the Bible does talk about good works that are a fruit of our relationship with Christ, but they are not the means by which we get to God. Our good works then do not appease God's wrath, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now these, these Philistines were, were, were wrestling with this issue of uncertainty. And if we're, we're seeking to approach God in a mystical, self-effort-based way, then we will never be settled with this question. We will never be certain of what God wants or promises. But as uncertainty is so much a part of religion, it is countered by the teaching of Scripture. Here's what Jesus says. And I know this is, this is going to be kind of really fuzzy for us, Okay? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I know that's fuzzy. I, I know it's, you know, it may not, you know, just you can't maybe make that out. I'm being facetious, obviously. That's pretty clear, isn't it? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a certainty that God has given us in his word so that we can pursue our worship of him in a way that honors and glorifies him. He doesn't want us to be left uncertain. Again, in 1 John, what does he say? These things I've written to you that you may what? Know, I want you to know, I want you to know. God wants us to be people who know, not people who, who are gathering things from pagan religious ideas and bringing them into a Christian walk and making it confusing. So we don't have to turn to diviners or priests of our day for wisdom because we have something that is much more trustworthy, the scriptures. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Peter 1.19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. It grieves me in my pastoral ministry when I've sought to counsel people and they are much more willing to go someplace and have a mystical experience than to open up the word of God and say, what does it say? How am I to live? What am I to do with the wrath of God and his holiness on my life? People want a mystical feeling, but it's a challenge to say, open the Bible. But this is where God wants us to be. This is where life is. 
It's his breathed out word given to us. Now we may be tempted to say, but didn't the methodology of the Philistines work? Shouldn't we follow their example? And you know what, you can read this passage and come to that conclusion. But I, wanna, I just wanna caution you, don't use their methodology and his example for your walk with God. Let me respond to that question this way. There is nothing in the text that tells us that God was pleased with their efforts. What we can say is this. There's a difference between God lifting his hand from a people and so giving relief from his earthly wrath and God lifting his hand from a people and so giving relief from his eternal wrath. Let me say that again. It's a big difference between God lifting his hand from a people and so giving relief from his earthly wrath and God lifting his hand from a people and so giving relief from his eternal wrath. That is God's mercy. That is his kindness. So the, the first, this earthly wrath, release of earthly wrath, is part of his providential plan. God raises up leaders, he takes leaders down. He lets them win battles, he causes them to be defeated. It's all part of his providential plan. He has made his point with the Philistines. And he's made his point with Israel. He's ready to remove the plague of tumors from the unbelieving Philistines and to return the ark to his people. This is God being gracious and merciful. But his release of eternal wrath comes only through belief in his son Jesus Christ and his atoning death on the cross. So unless the Philistines repent, they will stand before the creator of the universe in that day, that day of judgment, and give account for their unbelief. Again, this is, this is how religious man thinks. They think that, that somehow God's punishment now is what matters. <laughs> you know, it's that thing, oh, you know, I, I told a bad joke. No lightning! God's wrath is not there. But listen, it's not the joke that God is concerned about. It's your condition of sin. And that condition of sin, if it is not repented of, will result in you standing before God in judgment. So there's earthly wrath and there's eternal wrath. And earthly wrath can be repented of. Eternal wrath, when you're standing before God, it's done. It's done. Now, that's the first section. Learning to respect the hard way. Learning to respect the hard way. Did they learn it the hard way? They sure did. And it was their attempt at respect. But it fell short. Let's recognize that. And many religious people there are in this world. This is my Yoda moment, okay? And, and um, they are seeking to pursue God, but by the wrong methods, without following and listening to the revelation of the word of God. And they have genuine motives, but they're blind, they're ignorant. They need the gospel, they need the truth. Now let's move on to the second group, purposely long in this first one, second group. This is handling respect, I'm calling it the flippant way, the flippant way. I'm kind of, I'm giving things away here at the beginning, but 
Um, just hold on to that thought as we move along in this passage. The emphasis in the story now turns from the Philistines and their dealing with the Ark of God and the people of Beth Shemesh. But it is worth pointing out that the arrival of the Ark um, to those people, uh, to the Israelites in particular, is observed by the lords of the Philistines. That's in verse 16. So let's go back to verse 13 and notice how differently the people of Israel, or in particular Beth Shemesh, respond to the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant. Notice, first of all, that there is great rejoicing, all right? There is great rejoicing. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Well, that just makes sense, doesn't it? The ark was captured, and here comes the ark. God has answered our prayers. Now, understand the impact of what's going on here. At the end of chapter four, we have this theme just kind of left lingering out there for us, and it's this word Ichabod, which was the name that was used to, 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 to name uh, Phineas's son. And Ichabod means the glory has departed, and it was, a, it was a statement talking about the Ark of the Covenant has departed from Israel. And so there was this, this, this discouragement, there was this... this um, Departure of God from Israel when the ark was taken captive. And so now it comes back. And so it's no longer Ichabod, but he has come back. The glory has departed, but now the glory has returned. So this is a day to celebrate. This is a time to rejoice. So this, this, this ark that represented God's rulership and, and his revelation and his reconciliation has come back. And so you can imagine what happened. People are out there in the fields and they're, they're you know, sickling away or you know, whatever they do out there in the fields, right? And they drop their tools and they start running. The ark is here. Some run close to the ark. Some run to the village or the town. And the people start coming out. In particular, the Levites start coming. You can imagine just what's happening here, right? There is great rejoicing. And then verse 14, there's also worship. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. It seemed rather providential and so obvious that they should um, take the, car, the, the, uh, the cart and chop it up into pieces and build an altar there and to offer uh, sacrifices. In particular, it tells us a burnt offering and they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Yeah, just a great time of celebration, great time of worship. And verse 15, I'm calling respect, all right? There's respect. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which the, were the golden figures and set them upon the great stone. So the Levites now jump in because Beth Shemesh was actually a Levitical city and so they were there and these are the guys who they know, they know what to do. They know how to handle the ark. That's what they were trained to do, right? So they take the ark down, and um, um, their reverence is followed by the continual worship through burnt offerings given by the men of Beth Shemesh. And then we continue reading, and the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Now, let's step back a little bit here. I want you to notice that there. There are three witnesses to these things. And this, it says right there, <clears throat> and when the five lords uh, Philistines saw it, they returned. Da, 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 no, that's not it. What does it say? Oh, yeah. Uh, so as we, as we jump down to, to verse 18, it says, the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day. 
in the field of Joshua at Beth Shemesh. So who are the witnesses that, that, that are reminding the people of this event? You have the, the Philistines who are watching. You have the people of Beth Shemesh who are coming and gathering when they see the ark. And you also have the narrator who's telling the story. So there's just something that's happening here. It's like this is a, this is a place that was remembered until that day by the people of Beth Shemesh. As the person is writing this, this, this account, the people are aware of this particular location and what happened here, all right? Now, that witness then is, is just helpful for us to kind of connect the dots. And this is where we would wish that the story ended. But it doesn't. There's rejoicing, there's celebration, there's, there's worship, there's, there's treating God with respect, but sadly, it is not over. And what we're about to read comes as quite a shock to us and I'm calling it the casual flippancy in the presence of God. There's a casual and flippant respect. Here's what the text says, verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Now, now guys, listen, I, I, I know this is, this is a long story but I want, to stay, I want you to stay with us because this is, this is kind of getting to the, the focal point, I want to say the climax of, of this particular paragraph here or this particular chapter. I just I want us to make sure that we, we understand what's going on here, okay? This seems so harsh. Here comes the ark and we're rejoicing and we're celebrating, we're worshiping and we're, we're treating God with respect. And yet, God strikes the people, in particular the men, 70 of them, with this great blow. It just seems over the top. But it is worth us being reminded about something. The Philistines had only a very limited revelation from God, but the Israelites had a word-for-word, face-to-face revelation given by God to Moses and the people And, of course, Moses, in turn, turned around and gave that word to the Levites and the priests. And in that word, we're giving counsel about the events of this day that did not fall into the we are respecting the holiness of God category. So what appeared to be respectful worship, what appeared to be respectful response to the Ark of the Covenant, actually failed to be what they intended it to be. So let's repaint the picture for a moment of what I've just walked you through, but from God's perspective. First of all, you're violating the burnt offering. You're violating the burnt offering. Let's see, yep, there we go. Now why are they violating the burnt offering? Leviticus 1.3 says this, if his offering is a burnt offering from from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. What did they offer as a sacrifice? Two cows. Oh, come on, God! What do you mean? We're offering you a sacrifice. We're worshiping you. What does it matter if it's a cow or whether it's a bull? See how our casual 
attitude toward the things of God can be adjusted. They just offer. But what God requires in a burnt offering is a male sacrifice. You're making the holy things a tourist attraction. You get this picture here of them getting the Ark of the Covenant and then there's this, there's this rock, the stone, and they're putting the ark on the stone and, and putting all the other things on the stone, and people are coming by. It's like, wow, it's great, we have the ark. Now, there's an aspect where simply just, just looking you know, at, at the ark is, is not necessarily um, violating God, but there was something that the Levites should have done. The Levites, unless they were Levites working in the tabernacle, when they had to move the tabernacle, they would go in and they would cover all of the holy things so that all the priests, the Kohathites, would not see the holy things because if they would see the holy things, they would die. But here we have the ark, it's on display. And who would not want to go and see the ark? It's so shiny and beautiful and majestic as well as all the trophies that came by and set aside those tumors and stuff, but the mice, if you like mice, those look good too. You see the, you see the difference that's going on here. There, there's good intentions. But this all results then in this last thing that we're talking about. They were looking upon the ark of God and, and the, under, the wording there, looking upon, is maybe better understood as looking into and, and not necessarily looking into in the sense of lifting the lid up, but kind of inspecting. See, the ark of God was, was something that was to be kept from what I say, the, the, the common people of Israel. Only the Levites and only particular people had the privilege of actually coming in the presence of the ark and seeing it. But now it becomes a thing of, of wonder and they're looking at it and it's those people God strikes dead. And we're not told anything here about the motives of the heart of the people. We're told here that God was not pleased and delivered a great blow. Now friends, the response of the men of Beth Shemesh is, is really the focal point of this passage. Well, we have seen the response of the pagan Philistines who have suffered under the wrath of hand, wrathful hand of God and they are simply eager to send the ark away. But now as the ark of God has returned to God's people, these people are offended that God would punish them and that they would, they just want the ark to go away too. <laughs> Doesn't that shock you? The ark is here, but now send it away. And here's what they say. The men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the, ark, before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? And the first question is a good one. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And it takes us back to Hannah's words at the beginning of her song where she says, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. The second question, however, is of great concern. And to whom shall he go up away from us? So the men of Beth Shemeth are, she, are saying this, no one is safe in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom can we send it to be rid of him? Now, here, here's, here's the point. The men of Beth Shemesh can be safe in the presence of the Lord if they're willing to follow his revealed will. 
the Levites should have carried out their responsibility and protected the ark so that people were not inspecting it in that irreverent way and God would ultimately bring that blow on them. Now still, it seems shocking to us. But there is this unwillingness now to say, you know what, if that's the way it's going to be, get it out of here. I just think about that. There's no heart searching. There's no self-examination. There's no remorse at sin. There's no shame that they had acted in a casual way as they worshiped God. There's no repentance or confession or a desire to get rid of God or get right with God, I should say. There is a desire simply to get rid of the ark. Send it away. Can't do this. Verse 21, so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirith-Jerim saying the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. So the glory has returned to Israel only to be spurned. The holiness of God is on display only to have his people say, go away. Now there's some application that I think just naturally flows out of this. There's much for us to meditate on, to think about, um, and to, to seek God's counsel about that flows out of this encounter. How do we come to God in our worship? It's a legitimate question. Are we mindful of his wishes? Do we even care about the fact that we might come to him in a way that would violate his will? Now the Philistines didn't have God's revelation to guide them, but the Levites did. And so do we. And we're held accountable for what God has revealed to us in his word. But when we become casual, or flippant, and apathetic in our worship, and do things that dishonor him, or play down his holiness, unless we repent, we will want to drive him away. I get that. If we're casual and we're flippant, unless we repent, we'll want to drive him away because he will be there saying, listen, what you're doing does not honor me. And we're going to respond like these people saying, this is too hard. Move away. I want to do church my way. I want to do this Christian thing my way. A few weeks ago, as some of you know, my wife and I were in England on a trip, and we stayed at a place called the Highbury House, and it was a, um, a Christian, Christian conference center of sorts, big building in the middle of London, um, and there were a lot of people staying there, and there was a particularly young female college student um, that uh, I struck up a conversation with um, just because I was doing laundry, and she was in front of me, and I was waiting for her, and I saw she had the name of her school on her, on her um on her uh, sweatshirt, and it was a Christian school um, in the Los Angeles area. And um, so I started asking questions about her, and you know, why did you go to that particular school? And oh, she gave me some reasons why, and, and, uh, and I said, well, where'd you, where'd you grow up? She said, oh, Santa Clarita. I said, oh, Santa Clarita, okay, that's great. So you're like in the shadow, you're right there where Master's College is, and why didn't you go to Master's College? And she's like, I'm gonna go to Master's College. My pastor is a big you know, supporter of Master's College, and he said in a sermon one day, she's just saying this, right? She said in a sermon one day that, that, uh, 
that uh, you know, a woman could never stand in the place in this pulpit and, and, and be a pastor of this church. Even if she was smarter than me, even if she had more education than me, God's word does not allow that. And she said to me in that conversation, without me asking any questions, my God wouldn't do that. The God I know that I grew up with would not limit a woman from serving in that capacity. And I'm doing everything just to, you know. <laughs> you know. And I said, well, you know, I would encourage you to read, you know, Book of Titus, you know, both of the Timothy books, and see what the qualifications are for that particular role and that kind of stuff. But the, the thing that, that I want to, I want to home in on here is this, this attitude and this statement that so many people make, and that is, my God won't be like that. My God doesn't do X, Y, Z. My God, my God, my God. And friends, that is so prevalent in our Christian communities. That the word of God is not the basis of our understanding of who he is and what he calls us to. The word of God is there if I need it but I am the one that's gonna formulate my opinion of who God is and what he expects. And I'll take bits and pieces, and if I like this piece, I'll take it. If I don't, then I'll say, no, that's not what God wants. And so we create a God of our own making within the context of Christianity. And here are the Israelites who have the revelation of the word of God, and they're offended that God would bring his judgment on them for violating his revealed will. And here we are as God's children and we can have the same attitude too. You know, it's just a sin. It's not that big of a deal. So some people cringe when sin is talked about in the context of church. Come to Gateway, too bad. I mean, you're going you're gonna to get that, but they think that the talk of sin and judgment and wrath and blood is depressing. So preacher, please don't speak on these subjects. Let's not sing about them. Let's not focus on them, but let's think about the good bits that encourage us, like God's love and his forgiveness and, and faithfulness and provision and blessing. I love those, but all of those must be understood in the greater context of who God is and that he's holy and that he will and does exercise his wrath. Many are offended that their creative attempts at worshiping him fall short of his standards of holiness. Now, if you've been at Gateway for long, you probably have not seen interpretive dance here in church, okay? Now, let me give you some of my interpretation of that. It's not about dancing. I just just don't think it's healthy for us to observe someone in leotards prancing around um, before we open up the word of God. It just, it just doesn't, it doesn't connect. Now to me, I wanna make sure that things are done in a respectful way, in a decent, in, 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 in a way that honors God. That's just one example. And, and you know, there's, there's a place, there's a place scripture I think reveals for, for us reflecting our, our joy of who God is, but we don't have to borrow the world's standards and ideas to actually be the means by which that is accomplished. We need to be careful about how we think through what we do in the context of church. 
Okay, so, so we want to be careful. And some people say, well, I was being creative and I was just, I was trying to, to show my, my love for God through this. Yeah, but is it possible that what you're trying to do actually offends him? Why would God be offended at that? Whatever that is. You see, my attempt to worship God in a creative way trumps what God expects of me. God should, God must accept my attempts at worship. Well, how about we open up God's word and say, what does God actually say? Now, I want to be careful not to bring out a lot of examples because we may have some differences of that. But it's the principle that I think is really important here. Number three, in my thinking here, uh, others simply want to bypass the word of God and do church worship being led by the Spirit. Um, The problem with that is that the Spirit leads us through his word, not outside of his word. And what such people are really after is a means of worship and living that is driven by their feelings. And that is not pinned down by the specifics of the word. So let's remember the greater context here. Remember what was happening in Israel? Everyone was doing that which was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Um, And that resulted in Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, um, abusing the whole sacrificial system by by going in and taking all the meat that they wanted, the raw meat that was supposed to be burned on the altar, that was supposed to be sacrificed to God to appease him. They also allowed the, 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 um, the immorality to take place, were participating in, in that themselves with uh, female temple servants. Um, and of course that all resulted in the Ark of the Covenant being taken captive. But now that the Ark has returned, God is saying to the Israelite people, The ark may be back, but I am still the same holy God that requires much from his people. You see, the ark is a representation of God. The ark is not God. And God has not changed. The same holy God that brought them out of Egypt is the same holy God that is still present with them. He has not changed. He is still a God of wrath. He's still a God of love. He's still a God who exercises his will. He's still holy. He is also gracious and forgiving. He has not changed. He's saying, I am holy and I will be respected. And apparently you still need to learn the lesson the hard way. Now just quickly, let's go to this last section. There's not much to say here, but enough to say that I think is helpful here. So they actually send the ark of the Lord away, which still boggles my mind, but they do. And now they send this ark to the men of kirith Jerim, who, I'm saying, ex- exercise respect in a humble way. Notice what it says, and the men of kirith Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged in kirith Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Just three things that just kind of pop out to me from this that we can, we can see here. Um, 
there's a serious manner in which they go about taking care of the ark of God. You know, they're, they're, they're gonna, you're gonna put a man next to it. He's gonna be in charge of it. And, and there's a sense in which the text doesn't tell us all of this, but we, we, we get the understanding because it, the ark settles here and, and it's, it's, it's safe and that they're handling it well. There's no, there's no data here to tell us that they're violating anything. Now, what's interesting is that these are, this is a, a town that was inhabited by the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites, if you remember, were not actually part of the Jewish line. They tricked Joshua into not being killed. And as a result, they were, Joshua said, okay, I'm not gonna kill you, but you are going to be the woodcutters and you are going to be the, um, the, the server, are gonna help us, um, the water bearers at, at the tabernacle because they need a lot of water with all the sacrifices and stuff. And so in contrast to the Israelites, the men of, the, the, the of Beth Shemesh, these men exercised faith in the one true God. They acted according to the revealed will of God. They, they were humble, they were respectful, and they were keen to have the Ark of the Covenant in their presence. Secondly, um, the length of its stay, 20 years. Um, and that's 20 years actually till the beginning of Samuel's ministry. It actually stayed there in that place for a hundred years until David actually ascended to the throne and he calls now for the ark to be returned. Now, there, there's something in this, you just think, think about a writer writing the story. How long did it stay with the Philistines? Seven months. We end up here with it staying for 20 years. See, it's, it's settled in this place and it's being taken care of. The last thing here is the lamenting of Israel. Why are they lamenting? Because Kirith-Jerim is not in the center of Israel, it's on the outskirts. Kirith-Jerim does not become another Shiloh. Kirith-Jerim is a place where the ark is kept. People aren't pilgriming there. It's kept, it's protected, it's honored, it's respected. So there's a sense in which God has returned, but he has returned at a distance. And now the people of Israel need to be led, and ultimately they will be led by Samuel, and then ultimately David. And then of course the big picture is ultimately Christ. Now just some concluding thoughts here, quickly here. Two things I wanna say. Who is able to stand before the Lord, the whole, this holy God? Not the ungodly, not the wicked. We started our service this morning with Psalm 1. And verse four through the end says this, the wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. There's the ungodly, the wicked, there's the righteous also. Now, I want you to think about this beautiful passage of scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21. How does one become righteous? For our sakes he made him, talking about God the Father made Jesus his son, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our ability to stand before God is only because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's only because the atonement has covered us. It's only because the sacrifice of Jesus on that cross has paid for our sin and now covers us 
eternally in the person of Jesus Christ. So you and I cannot stand before God on our own without receiving his wrath. But if we're God's children, we stand before God not alone, but covered with the righteousness of Christ. And God has already poured out his righteousness on his son on the cross. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. I'm sorry about that. How serious do you take your struggle with sin? I want to finish with a quote from um, Jerry Bridges in his great book, The Pursuit of Holiness. And just listen to what he says. One day I was reading in the second chapter of 1 John, I realized that my personal life's objective regarding holiness was less than that of John's. He was saying in effect, make it your aim not to sin. As I thought about this, I realized that deep within my heart, my real aim was not to sin very much. Can you imagine a soldier going into battle with the aim of not getting hit very much? Have we settled in our Christian walk to the place where we're not saying, God, I want to deal with my sin, but just, I just want to deal with a little bit of my sin, a little bit of soul searching, a little bit of repentance, a little bit of confession, or are we, as God's children, recognizing enough that because of our union with Christ, that our sin has been forgiven. So any sin that comes up now has already been paid for, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and we can be restored once again as we continue to struggle with our sin, but take it seriously. So as Jerry Bridges would say, and as it is up there, make it your aim not to sin, no. I mean, yes, as opposed to make it your aim not to sin very much. We need to change our focus, change our pursuits, Seek to honor God. One is a, a violation of his will. Another one respects his holiness. What will we do with the holiness of God? Lord, we, we, we've struggled our way through this text. This has not been easy, Lord, just to see the nuances and the essence of what you're seeking to teach the original readers as well as us, Lord. Help us to see that you are a holy God And as a holy God, you demand our respect. And just because we have the privilege of having you as our Savior does not mean that we have the right to be disrespectful to you. But Lord, through you and by virtue of your Son and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, we can know and we can do what you've called us to do. We can work out our salvation with fear and trembling in such a way, Lord, that we can do it with joy, knowing that we can come boldly before you, we can repent of our sin, we can be restored, and we can keep plugging away for your glory. Help us, Lord, to get that reality and that truth central in our lives, we ask in your precious holy name, amen.